Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoteric Nerd Podcast, episode 29, in which we interview Jonah. But first, Transformation. Part 4 in our ongoing segment in which I read verse by verse my dad's book. Today we'll be hearing two verses. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. Flesh is inconvenient. Too much convenience is supposed to be boring. Anyhow, a lot of us are junkied on being here time and time again. It takes little wandering around than listening, even less reading, even less standing and watching, to see how many people who never think to ask out loud put reasons here for us to get stuck here. Verse 5. Here in the flesh they keep you, at any rate, by fascinating you with contrasts such as amusement and boredom, and the sensory differentiation between experiences which you get to label painful and pleasurable, and find others to agree and disagree with you on what exactly is painable and pleasurable, all of which gives you opportunities to confuse the painable with the pleasurable, and make life tastes which taste as different or the same as somebody else and you get to make friends and enemies, breaking up the texture of the white light into egos and nations and states and cities and football teams and people who drive cars and people who beg carrying their children in wheelbarrows or on their backs, for whom you have a variety of options about how to feel, somewhere between something they call here guilt and something else they call contempt and something else they call sorrow and something a bit more they call caring, and something they label the opposite of that they call not caring. And now for the footnotes. Flesh is indeed inconvenient. You have to feed it. You can't fly anywhere. Junkied on being here time and time again like watching Doctor Who on Christmas. And who is this they that keeps us here? That's what my dad would have asked me. I remember he asked me, how is the body made? And I'd say, well, first they make the bones, and then they make the muscles, and then they... And he says, who's they? Well, I ask you the same thing, Dad. Who is this they you're referring to? But I suspect here in the flesh they keep you at any rate by fascinating you with contrasts such as amusement and boredom, the at any rate may refer to let's move on to the rest of this thought, or they keep you at any rate... I can't quite put my finger on the manner of the use of speech, but acknowledging that they keep you isn't a very good uh, way of putting it somehow with the at any rate, I don't know. Yes, the on-off, the pleasure-pain, the light-dark, the turning of the earth, and all these contrasts that draw us back into flesh-place birth over and over. Breaking up the texture of the white light into all these things in order to play this game. One of the games, of course, being to complain about it. Why did we make all these football teams? And the differentiation between people having the experience of life as a wealthy person or as a poor person and how to feel about that. Experiences which God gets to experience now through us. Our guest tonight is an old friend. I had put the word out that I was interested in having a conversation with someone who was trained in Western esotericism and who also was familiar with Mormonism and who was interested in having a conversation about it from a standpoint of interest and respect as opposed to just ridicule. And so, without further ado, let's get to the interview, shall we? Greetings, Frater. Welcome to the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Absolutely. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your name? I'm familiar with the biblical Jonah. 
my understanding is that in, in Hebrew it translates to dove. Mm, interesting. So, so in the interest of of light or the light descending upon the earth, as it's as it's said, um, like a like a ship brought by uh, to be brought down, you know, uh, like a like a dove landing on the shoulder. So to speak. Yeah, I always think of like the dove coming down just over the head, like the white sh- letter shin. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, so we were going to talk a little bit about. Um, yeah, the, I I I grew up with some, as you may know, some some very interesting and and uh, open-minded and intelligent parents. And one of the things, I think one of the things, one, one of my motivations for making this podcast is I'm, I'm trying to seek out other people that I can have conversations with, um, like the conversations that I used to have with my parents and like the conversations that I used to have with Gordon Beam, who was a, a dear friend of mine who passed away last year. And uh, one of the things that, that I miss talking about is the Mormon church in any other context besides ha, 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 the Mormons. And um, and you know, my mom was fascinated by their architecture. My dad was fascinated by the Book of Mormon and its possible connections with actual ancient American history. And he wrote a lot of articles on it. And if anybody's listening, just search for Mormon and John Dan Reeb together in Google, and you'll get some of his articles. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. And and uh, and I know that you you and I know each other in the context of uh, Golden Dawn. And uh, so I kind of put the word out there, hey, is there anybody who does Golden Dawn who has respect for Mormonism? And, and you answered the call. So, Well, uh, I've been a member of the church for a little over three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I came to the church in, in a kind of a roundabout way. I wasn't seeking to join a church, though I was having, you know, religious experience uh, intermingling and uh, with with my Golden Dawn experiences mm-hmm. uh, over you know the years previous to me joining this church and I you know I found myself in an interesting scenario uh, in Denver um, staying with a family for the summer and uh, I, I made an arrangement to live there sort of rent-free in exchange for healing services and, and energy energy healing for uh, them and their friends and family. And uh, and they were all born into the church, so to speak. And so I wanted to be able to give them you know, practical advice that was grounded in their faith. Mm. Um, as a sort of follow-up measure to the healing sessions I was providing for them. So I started meeting with the sister missionaries that were in the area. And uh, long story short, 10 weeks later, I I was baptized. Nice. What was that like? Well, one of one of the first experiences I had attending a, a a church function was attending a baptism. And I remember going and uh, being there slightly early, and there was a man there who was um, overseeing the the baptism itself. Um, they call it presiding. So he mm-hmm. was presiding over the baptism, and I was chatting with him about it. And I remember thinking, okay, so here's the water, but where's the fire? Hmm. And I, I noticed that that he changed his posture, uh, you know, kind of thought, seemed to be processing something, and then he turned to me and and he said, "And tomorrow there will be the fire." Wow. And uh, and so what he was meaning by that is that you know the church, um, it, the baptism happened to be on a Saturday. So when a new member is, is baptized into the church, the the following Sunday they're confirmed a member by the laying on of hands. Hmm. And so he was referring to this second part of of the uh, baptism process, which is called confirmation. And 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 at this time there is a you are 
given the gift of the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. They say receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is meant to um, be a constant companion unto mem- members of the church. So hearing that and having that experience, and you know, among the other experiences that I had uh, early on uh, attending church and seeing that these people were, were service-oriented, they're hardworking, they weren't furthermore they weren't really questioning faith they didn't have a lot of questions about right. what the faith meant what you know how to interpret the bible all all these things that seemed to be a grind for other christians yeah um i i just saw it as a a very uh, um clear comparison to uh, the higher genius yeah I was curious, was the Holy Ghost, is that on the Saturday of the baptism, or is that on the Sunday confirmation? So the confirmation happens on Sunday mm-hmm. in what's called the sacrament meeting. So this is the the meeting that is uh, held first, and it's it's where the Lord's Supper is, is provided. You know, we do bread and water, communion type thing, and... Um, you know, you have general announcements and you have people from the congregation uh, who are asked to speak, give talks about certain subjects. And so at the beginning of this meeting, they make the announcement that there was a baptism. They give the name of the person and, you know, the person walks to the front uh, of the uh, meeting house in the chapel. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone is pre-selected by the person to give the the confirmation, and then there's they. It's very cool. They stand in a, a in a circle, and you know, one person lays lays hands, and the others sort of uh, lay one hand on. I believe it's the the left hand, and then the right hand is placed on the shoulder of the person in front of them. So it's a kind of a, they create a literal physical circle of people that are supposed to funnel in this this energy delivering the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay, so that happens with the baptism. Yeah, yeah it happens on Sunday after, the Sunday after. Oh, the baptism, okay. The baptism, so that's baptism the fire. So the fire is yeah. the Holy Ghost. Absolutely. Makes sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking of the, uh, in the context of how Thoth was always... Wa- uh, pictured walking with Osiris and uh, one version of the story that I heard was that when Osiris wanted to go to his brother's party that he was having in his honor um, Thoth wouldn't go and so Osiris walked without Thoth that day and so in, in that in the uh, 777 correspondences that would be like uh, walking without the Holy Spirit it's interesting sure. yeah, yeah it is very interesting I, I could so, you know, from my experience, I, I've no, I noticed a, a very big difference in, in um, you know, just, just my general prayer and meditation work and getting uh, guidance and, and what we in the church would refer to as personal revelation. Yeah. Well, the Book of Mormon starts out with basically a scrying session and an angelic invocation, and and he was and writing down everything that was said, and then the Book of Mormon it proceeds to descry it. So, I mean, it just seems like there's some very close connections between our work and and the work that goes on there, or at least the work that went on in the very beginning. Yeah, the the, the story of the translation is is pretty amazing to me, and and the story that I'm familiar with, you know, talks about him having a a visitation from an angel called Moroni. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this, in this visitation, it's sort of outlined many things. I'm sure somewhere all of it might be documented or more than what is, might be readily accessible in, in the, what's handed out through the church. I'm not certain. But one thing that's very cool is that the, the first, when this originally happened, it was uh, on the autumnal equinox. Hmm. Interesting. And I find that to be very fascinating. Um, but but he has, so he has, you know, Joseph Smith Jr. has a visitation. And, and 
at night and it said, you know, the, the angel comes back four times and delivers the message exactly the same. Yeah. Over the course of the night. And, you know, four, four years, four years later, he's actually able to retrieve these golden plates and, and begin translation work. But, but he go, you know, he's instructed to go and find this location to see where the plates are and to look at them and gaze upon them but leave them there and to prepare over that time to, for the translation work and, and to, you know, build what is now, you know, the, the church. Uh, the, so it's sort of like the, the cipher manuscripts in a way. Yeah, you, you could draw that comparison. Uh, but, but what's included in this, in this same location is also a, a, a breastplate that he's meant to wear during translations. And I've not found anywhere where anywhere that where it's actually described, you know, mm. the details of the breastplate, and also something called the Urim and Thummim. Hmm. And what uh, was that? They're 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 just it's interesting. They're described as two stones. Um, but recently, I've been um, listening to an audio book called The Mormon People, and in this, they're described as spectacles. Oh, that, that he would actually wear. Okay, uh, like glasses. But it goes on to to say in in this in this account, uh, um, and I don't remember the author uh, uh, offhand from from this uh, source, the Mormon people. It talks about him not using the arm and thumb, but using a seer stone. And so here we have someone, you know, in the uh, 1820s into the 1830s, and he's he's apparently you you know using a breastplate to protect himself from from the light, uh, one would assume, and uh, a dark stone to translate a a book that is an account of the ancient American people from about the time of 600 BC. Hmm. And the and, thing, uh, the thing that my dad found fascinating was that there were a couple things he got right, um, as far as uh, domesticated horses and the evidence of domesticated horses in Peru at that time. I believe it was 300 BC. Uh, there were cave cave drawings that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known about that were discovered more recently. Um, he wrote those articles uh, in the 90s, in the 1990s, and they're all over the internet. They're quoted in every different language. Um, and when there was something where they had done genetic testing and found out that none of the Peruvians uh, had any uh, Hebrew DNA, and um, so they, they, you know, a bunch of people were leaving the church because they felt they had been lied to. And so I started, I had someone uh, translate that article into Spanish and started publicizing it to try to, um, you know, boost morale in Peru. Even though I'm not Mormon, I just felt like, oh, well, there's this, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this might help you guys <laughs> if you need something like that to keep your faith, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great service to, to those people. Um, you know, when when I was going through those first meetings with the sister missionaries, and you know, I had no intent of be becoming a member of the church, um, but I I had uh, I was trying to get into the Book of Mormon and, and read it, and there's a part where it talks about. Um, an actual method to know whether or not the book is true, and it's uh, it's in the book called Moroni, chapter ten, verse three through five, and it, and, it, and basically what it indicates is that if you have a faith in Christ and you you ask with a sincere heart and true intent, that you will know if the book is true or not. And I was I was trying to you know work it out and get into it, and I and I took a trip with a friend to. Crazy Horse Memorial in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. um, not having not realized to the full extent that this book was an account of the early American people, and you know their connection to uh, you know modern day Native American 
tribes. And so here's, you know, here I am at this memorial, and, and there's all these beautiful booths displaying, you know, colors and 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 textiles and, and different things that these these tribes of North America would create. And 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 then that's when all these dots sort of connected for me in a similar way that you're, you're, you're talking about. Right. You know, an, an archaeological kind of connection that confirms uh, some of the insight and, and revelations that Joseph Smith Jr. was receiving. So my my uncle at some point I haven't I haven't done a lot of my own uh, family history to the to the extent that I know my my DNA and my origins. But one of my uncles claims that we have Iroquois heritage. Hmm. And when when I was at Crazy Horse Memorial, I I I'm, I'm, I found myself really connecting to this idea of of Iroquois heritage in my family. And then I realized where these plates were unearthed was Iroquois territory. Hmm. This is Palmyra, New York. Um, and then then I remember the show I I'd seen. It might have been the History Channel, and it's and it's talking about. Um, Hebrew letters being found in a in a Native American cave in Tennessee, hmm. and and it was it was actually associated with the Cherokee people, and and then you know the show went on to talk about uh, this this connection in that tribe or stories in that tribe of of light skinned people, and it, it was. Seemed to depict that that um, over the years in that tribe that there would be uh, people born who um, to you know the the traditionally thought of brown skin uh, Native Americans and they would come out lighter almost like European hmm. and you know all at once all those things hit me and I thought this this is true this has this has to be real. Um, and it, and it just it, it really stuck with me. And you know, the, after that time, I found myself able to read the Book of Mormon, and and understand it, and to feel connected in a way where I I felt I got a, a confirmation from spirit that it was true. Very interesting. It was a pretty amazing experience for me, uh, and. I know that Joseph Smith said at one point that, you know, heading into the next century, you know, basically what is present day, that there will be many discoveries that will confirm uh, the stories that are in the Book of Mormon, and there will be evidence in spades, I think is hmm. a close, the actual closer story. quote. I might be paraphrasing somewhat. The thing that's coming to mind for me is, you know, in sort of a um, more of a, I guess, less faith oriented and more of a like uh, historical anthropological questioning is, um, did the Vikings have Hebrew with them when because the, I know the Vikings came over and they didn't have sure. they didn't bring women with them. So the part about people being born with lighter skin makes sense. But the thing about them having Hebrew makes me think. What were the Vikings doing with Hebrew? <laughs> so that's, that's where my mind's going. But um, yeah, they, I, I had um, I wanted to share with you. I had <clears throat> I had a dream several years ago that um, I was in South America, and I don't know exactly where in South America, but it was the future, and it looked like a university um, in the you know kind of like a a well-funded university in the style of the buildings, the buildings were all newer than now. Um, and the, uh, the, it was taken care of like a garden. There's a, a place called uh, a passionist retreat center, a Catholic place up in Sierra Madre called uh, Mater Dolorosa or Dolorosa where uh, the gardeners, go, you know, go around and, and keep everything really beautiful. And there's statues of de uh, depictions of different events. And, um, and so it, it was all very reminiscent of that and the impression, and so, you know how sometimes when you, maybe you've had this experience too, where you, you're, when you're in the dream, you already know what you're looking at, 
And if somebody came up to you in the dream and said, what's that? You could, you could tell them. But then when you wake up, you realize, where did that information come from? That's not something in my real life, you know? Um, so in, in that way, I was able to tell that um, this was what was, had evolved from or had been it's, it had its roots in the university system and in the Catholic Church and in the Mormon Church. And all of these things were presented in a way that were useful to people. There was no longer the need to distinguish between whether something was religious, mythological, just a story, psychological, or uh, you know, historical people could identify with symbols personally and it was normal to do that. And so people were able to find the pure meaning of symbols and ideas and the stories that come from the religions and talk about them in a civilized way without having on one hand people preaching it as dogma and on the other hand, people talking a lot of crap about it, um, you know, outside of, of these organizations. So it was just a very powerful moving um, image. And, and when I came out of it, I had, you know, it just sort of re realigned some of my assumptions about the organizations of today and how to, what, you know, how to help things, you know, and, and it resulted in, for example, my decision to join the Catholic church at one point, um, you know, it was that and a few other things. It, I had a similar process to your own. And of course it involved a, a catechism and everything. Um, uh, chrismation they called it in the eastern right because it was the, it was the eastern church so yeah i mean i think i think it's all very fascinating are you are you familiar at all at all with the architecture so are we talking about the modern well i don't know about the modern as much as i i i just it's one of those things where if my mom were here i'd ask her um but uh it, it was something about the way that everything was designed originally which supposedly was drawn from the tablets uh, resulted in there already having a sh an elevator shaft before anybody thought of an elevator and uh, air conditioning ducts before anybody thought of central air. And so when those inventions came out, they just said, oh, well, good thing we already have a place for that. And, I, and now I have nothing to back up that story. I just thought it was an interesting story. Huh. Oh, oh so you mean literal architecture as in like the structures and buildings? Yeah. Yeah, like there was something... Sure. There was something coming through in um, in the architecture as well as in the uh, the teachings and everything. Yeah, you know that's very fascinating for me. I, I do know that early early structures um, were were primarily the first few temples that were built. Um, there was one in, in Kirtland, Ohio, and I don't know who who designed that. Um, but the second one in in Nauvoo. And in where um, Nauvoo, Illinois. Oh, okay. This the, the I I do know that that was primarily designed, or at least somewhat, uh, by Brigham Young. Mm. And so he he was known he was known as a very good architect, and uh, he he was uh, essentially the civil engineer that designed the the layout of Salt Lake City the the, the beginning layout uh you know temple square right you know the 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 temple which is the associated with the headquarters of the church okay. out there which took 40, 40 years to build well, that would be a good place to start looking probably yeah i i'd be fascinated to hear to hear more and, and learn more about that. I do know that the temple uh, and the Salt Lake Temple is constructed of a of a unique mixture of of elements and there's there's a lot of quartz in the in this sort of granite stone that that was uh that's on the exterior of the, the building. Yeah. I have entered I have entered the, the building um, on one occasion, um, but of course, you know the interior is is more modern than the the actual infrastructure of of the original architecture. Right. It'd be interesting to look at some old uh, sketches, maybe. Absolutely. 
Um, I, I do know that this this process that Joseph Smith Jr. used, and he was, you know, before he he did the translation, he was he was known as a as a, as a treasure hunter. Right. And uh, there was some kind so of scandal he, involving some silver. I don't know all the details about that. I, I'm not sure that I know either, but I know that he was he would um, he was known to be good at finding and locating things, and so he would use he would use a, a very um, what would be considered today esoteric technique to divine locations for precious metals, and you know his father was known as a dowser, mm. um, and you know he would use he would use this the seer stone to get revelation for the church and, and a lot of that is documented in a, in a section of, of scriptures of our church called doctrine and covenants and um in there we have you know what becomes the architecture figuratively speaking of the church but but as far as the actual formations and yeah, maybe it was Brigham Young that was tapped into something that combined with the elements that he was deriving from there. I would love to read, you know, more about Brigham Young myself. Yeah. Um, my studies at this point are, are primarily Joseph Smith Jr. and, and so, you know, a couple other members of his family. I uh, there's. Have you ever been out to Joshua Tree here in California? I have not. There's, uh, I, I didn't know until I was looking at the plaques um, that uh, these these brilliant yucca trees that that are just out there in the desert and they look really surreal. It all looks like some kind of Dolly esque landscape, and um, and apparently Joseph Smith and and some of the original church uh, were, at least according to the plaque, were among the first to see these. And it reminded them of Joshua in the wilderness praying with his arms up, looking up at, at the heavens. And so they called them Joshua trees. Oh. So I thought that was an interesting sort of local California um, tie-in uh, historically and culturally to to the Mormon church. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Now, Isis the Aquarian, um, in uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Source family, she wanted me to to ask about the uh, the polygamy aspect. If you had any thoughts about that? Yeah, I you know it it is a especially since it's a point of of contention uh, that that occurs even today. Uh, you know, I'm I'm extremely fascinated by by the history of it and uh, I, I learned a lot recently in, in this uh, again this program called the Mormon people and it, and it talks about some of the details that were that were happening at the time uh, of, of J Joseph Smith jr's days and you know the more research that, that I've done it it's Back then, it was very. It was done very differently than what you would see today. Even, even say, uh, like in Big Love, that HBO show, show, and he has, I think, four wives, and they all. I think there's four homes now. Each each wife has her own home. Um, but what my understanding is, is it was very different, and and you know what Joseph Smith Jr. seemed to understand. Uh, of it back then was this idea of, of exaltation that he could achieve a um, a higher rank so to speak in the heavens through through um plural marriage hmm. and and um the main the main differences that i that i was seeing in what he was doing there are a few strange ones in there but i think that he was he would seek out um widows um, and other other women who had somewhat stable living arrangements, and he would, uh, for for example, a, a daughter who still lives with her father. So he would he would marry women like this, and 
be, be sealed to them. And uh, widows who were living with uh, family members. And so he would never really cohabitate with a lot of these wives that, that he had. And I'm, I would guess that it was like on a lot of them, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I would guess a lot of them he he didn't maintain uh, daily contact with, and uh, maybe they they exchanged letters. And I would suspect that just a guess, over half of them were probably not romantic. Right. There there was no intimacy or romance there. Um, I as far as him having children with any of his uh, extra or, or plural wives, I, I'm not sure about yeah. that. I do know that there were a few a few that he married that a few women that he were was sealed to that were actually already married, and I, I don't I don't really understand That's the story behind that. Hmm. Um, but that seemed uh, somewhat strange to me. Uh, I, I, and I'm not really sure why, but, but I, the, the idea was a, a social construct. So what was being provided for, for these, these women, if you were, if you were taking on additional wives, it means it, it, at that time in history, it meant that you had resources to take care of them. So here, um, here you had the, these women who, um, would sometimes sometimes a lot of the the extra or the secondary tertiary and so on wives would would cohabitate with one another and it would be like a a big knitting circle or something right they would, they, they would um, create their crafts and and um, pursue ed- education and do all these things sort of free of the hindrance of a of a you know traditional marriage where there's a, a man there with you all the time, you know, expecting uh, what men expect. Dinner or, um, <laughs> yeah. Or, Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, huh. But, you know, for me personally, I, I think I find the practice to be fascinating. Uh, um, and, you know, obviously marriage is a difficult thing uh, in, in uh, our modern day. Right. Um, well, and there's the question of what's natural for a human being versus what came up as a result of the advent of real estate and the need to pass on lineages and inheritances sure. and things like that. You know, how much of it was a necessity? How much of it was practical? How much of it is divinely orchestrated and inspired the way a lot of people think? That brings up a different, another point, a related point. Um, I think that uh, probably most of the listeners um, will relate um, when I say <clears throat> that, you know, it bugged me a bit a few years ago. And, you know, whenever it comes up that you find out that they're investing millions of dollars in these um, these efforts to uh, block the, uh, you know, uh, uh, the right of marriage to homosexual couples. And it, it just seems like, hmm, you know, uh, non-traditional marriage, isn't this your guys' thing? <laughs> and um, it seems like a lot of people are saying now that that's legal, the next thing up is polygamy, that, you know, that's going to be next on the agenda to, to work out over the next sure. few years. And so, I mean, maybe at that point, uh, the Mormon church might be investing money on the other side. Yeah. The, you know, I, I wondered the same thing um, just as far as the a natural progression and marriage equality, um, you know, from, from what's happening now with uh, the expansion of, you know, a traditional heterosexual marriage and, and you know, covering into you know, homosexual marriage and that perhaps leading to a plural marriage and, and it being accepted and legal. And I think, you know, the hard part there is going to be the numbers. I, I think that what, what you've had to get to this point is, you know, a lot of people who right. were... So it'll take a few decades, likely. It's not going to happen tomorrow because there's yeah. not there's not an overwhelming number number of of four and five uh, groups in in that context that are that are sure. uh, that are overwhelming the White House or anything. But it, it seems like yeah. that might come up at a certain point. At least that's I, and I, I, on both sides, like the the people who were oh I can't believe it's you know we lost the battle. What's next? This you know and yeah <laughs> probably. <Sure. laughs> you know? 
<laughs> yeah, I, 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 I have to admit that I thought the same thing, and I'd, I'd be interested. You know, I'm very fascinated to see where, where it would go and where it would lead, in, in, in that sense. But in, in the, from the historical perspective of the church, um, you know, there was a point where the, the current president, I believe his name was Woodruff, uh, was in that predicament where there, there was increased pressure from the United States government. Because for many years, you know, Brigham Young ruled Utah. He was the governor, and and this was, they were sort of uh, separatists uh, in a way. I, I don't know if that's the right term, but they, they it was, Utah was literally the land of, of the Mormons. They, they kept to their own. They had this utopian idea of, of society. They wanted everyone in the church to contribute something so that they uh, didn't have to purchase goods from any anyone who wasn't in the church. They wanted to be a self-sustaining, uh, self-reliant society. Yeah. Uh, but at some point, at some point, um, you know, the United States government became very powerful, and and uh, this president would to to avoid confrontation. You know, he he changed. He changed the uh, the outlook of of the church by saying, you know, we will we will maintain this as law and and become traditional marriage people, one, you know, one man, one woman type of thing. Um, and he and he he felt at the time if he didn't do that, that the church wouldn't survive. Yeah. So it, I have a a friend who's uh, who's also Mormon, and I asked her her feelings on the subject and she has very strong feelings about uh, that if polygamy were going to be a thing then there should be just as many women with multiple husbands as there are men with multiple wives you know i, I a few years ago i had a friend who was who I, who was telling me about this woman he was somewhat dating and and she was she happened to be married at the time and i believe she was uh, from Vietnam or somewhere in that area, and I think one of their one of their marital traditions is that that a woman would have would engage in uh, legitimate intimate relationships with with you know four to five men over her adult lifetime, and I don't know a lot about that tradition. Yeah. Well, and then it's interesting um, to imagine if one would spill over into the other, then at a certain point. Nobody's married because everybody's with everybody. <laughs> you know, if every if everyone's yeah. a multiple wife with a multiple husband with multiple wives with multiple husbands, then you know you just meet someone and say, "How are we married?" <laughs> right. Right, and, and you know, it reminds me of um, one of the programs that I watched that was produced by um, Joseph Smith's descendants. They were talking about. Uh, they're, they're, they want to be very connected with uh, Joseph Smith Jr.'s wife, Emma, Emma Hale Smith. And um, when I, I was watching one of, an interview with one of the family members, and she was indicating that um, one of the that one of the major purposes and, and missions of, of Joseph Smith Jr. was to because um, we, we in the church we refer to him as the the prophet of the restoration. Mm-hmm. So we we think of him as restoring all aspects of of the gospel, um, which is which is why we have temples that that do a lot of ordinances for family uh, and and you know husbands and wife being sealed sealed for time and all eternity. That's the phrase that we use. Yeah. Um, but what she was saying that. That uh, for for his for the restoration to be successful, he had to restore all aspects, and and this is where the the polygamy thing came in, because obviously you know you have the the stories of these patriarchs from the Old Testament who married multiple wives, sometimes mm-hmm. even Jacob into the hundred. Solomon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so you know it's not. Obviously, it's not something that that just was was um, right. brought out of nowhere. It was it was a tradition that was meant to be restored 
um, to complete this this uh, true and complete restoration of the gospel. I don't know. I don't know how that crosses. I don't know. I don't understand how it crosses over. I have a harder time with with that in in my own mind. Um, but it's certainly yeah, yeah, very I, interesting stuff. For me, it it helps to allow myself to see things through different kinds of lenses, like, for example, uh, metaphor and things like that. I mean, of course, if someone's saying, like, like you'll run into certain um, Christians and Catholics that are, you know, absolutely harping on that, no, it's the physical resurrection of the body. Here in the Apostles' Creed, it says that we're all going to be physically resurrected, so if you're cremated, you're not going to be, you know, and, and, and so, I mean, uh, at a certain point, I just have to say, all right, well, I guess I disagree with you. But I like to, I like to find places where I can agree, you know, um, so when, yeah. I, when, when I could let it lapse a little bit over into symbolism or a little bit into metaphor, um, then, for example, even if even if Joseph Smith didn't hit the nail on the head with everything he said about maybe you know Jesus teleporting over here at a certain time, maybe the what the real idea is is that the what Christ really is, what this man uh, Yeshua ben Yosef in you know two thousand years ago really was channeling, really was embodying also is present everywhere in the universe and of course in here in native american soil and so joseph smith is talking to a lot of people who are arrogant about being the civilized people among the savages and saying no these people also had jesus because that was one of the things they were parading around that makes us so superior was we had the gospel and they didn't and so he's saying no look they have it too. Here's proof, you know, and, and he was saying it in a particular way, but I agree with what he was saying, whether, whether he was, you know, making it up or not. Sure. Sure. And that's, and, and that's, that's essentially what I really love about everything I know about him is that, you know, during, you know, when he started the church and, and, and began you know, baptizing people and organizing things, he he uh, allowed everyone into it, and, and people of color were given the priesthood during his time, and uh, even, you know, freed or even non-freed, you know, African slaves, um, which which changed after he was gone. Right. Um, but but the, you know the the man that we refer to as the prophet of restoration, he 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 did those those things for for. He provided the gospel for everyone, so to speak. Yeah, it was not an exclusive thing. He recognized every person as being. But rather um, than saying, you know, like a lot of other Christian churches did, you Native Americans, you too can be part of the gospel. Let us teach you. He was saying, you Native Americans, that culture that you already have, look deep within it, and you'll find that it resonates the same with what we have over here, which is a very different thing to be saying, and I, I think a lot more classy and cultured for the time. I mean, you know, for 1820, yeah. he wasn't as progressive as John Lennon, but, you know, he uh, <laughs> was pretty progressive for the time, I'd say. I, I like to give credit where credit's due, especially, you know, and I also like to uh, to defend the underdog, and I've, I've been surrounded by for so many years by people who, if Mormonism comes up, it's just, oh, let's laugh about Mormonism and talk about how dumb it is or whatever. So it's refreshing to have a, an intelligent conversation about it and actually look at it and look at the things there are to, to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I I love I love your perspective on it. It, it. it reminds me of of things that are that he said that are repeated today, and and he when he was you know sharing the Book of Mormon with people, he would he would say we don't ask you to leave behind anything that you have that is good, we're just asking you to get more. Yeah. You know, and and I check you know check out this book. Increase what you have. Uh, don't replace what you have. Yeah. Exactly, and 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 that's what I love so much about the stories, and and uh, you know, like I said, that's a phrase that's repeated a lot. If if you watch, you know, a production that was made by the church that that is uh, about Joseph Smith and and him, you know, translating and then proselytizing and what have you, he he says that. And it's something that continues today it, it, in in our church. It, you know, we um, talk about the the Bible 
being a divine thing so far as it's translated correctly. So there's an objective kind of <clears throat> view and understanding and, and then also an encouragement to seek out spiritual things. Yeah. And to connect and, and what basically I, I know I've read somewhere to connect in spiritual ways and and to whatever in whatever way that you are guided and to pursue that. So there's there's an encouragement there that that you don't always find in in other churches. And you know to to what you said a, a few minutes ago, you know about you know cremation and things. You know you know over time you know people you know ideas turn into a superstition. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. I know. Yeah, you even see it in Golden Dawn where. You know, a tool falls over and breaks, therefore everybody freaks out about we're under attack because clearly why would that wand have broken right at that moment? You know, what was the stars <laughs> what were the stars doing when the wand fell? You know, I mean, it gets really weird, people cutting themselves to mix in with the super glue, you know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast, brother. Oh, it has been my pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to have been asked. It's an honor. And keep up the, the great work sharing uh, knowledge. Thank you very much. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Jonah for joining us on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast tonight. Thank you to the monks at Mount Koyasan for the beautiful chanting you're listening to right now. Thank you to Camille and Kennerly for the lovely harp transitions, the game plans, harp transitions. Episode 30 will be an interview with Mark Williams. He and I well, let's just say we have the same tattoo. Until then, may you be happy, may you be healthy and strong, and may you live with ease. Namaste.